Welcome to the Joseph Wells Podcast, where the guests are unique, but the goal is the same, improving our lives by standing on the shoulders of giants. My guest today is Robbie Crabtree. Robbie is a trial lawyer and the founder of Performative Speaking, an online course that transforms ambitious professionals into powerful public speakers. Robbie's course was recently acquired by OnDeck, where he is now the program director working toward launching the first cohort. In this episode, Robbie and I discussed his background in public speaking and how he built a successful online course in less than three months. Robbie shared his tactical tips for becoming a better speaker, and he explained the difference between factual and emotional truth, an important distinction to master for any aspiring storyteller. Before we get to the show, I have one quick ask. If you enjoy this episode, please sign up for my email list. Jump over to josephcwells.com to sign up you'll receive one email from me every Friday with the best content to enjoy over the weekend. All right, that's enough from me. Now, without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Robbie Crabtree. Robbie, welcome to the show. Hey, Joe. Great to be here, man. Yeah, it's great to have you. So I'd like to begin with the million dollar question here, which is why are you so bad at trivia? Um, it- I'm terrible at trivia because I can convince pretty much anybody that I'm right. I have just like this undying belief in my answers. And the problem is most of my friends will go with me because I'll always be able to link to something and be like, well, this is why this is right. And I'm not trying to do it in a manipulative way. I genuinely believe that I'm right a lot of these times. And then we end up going with my answer. And then sure enough, it was actually one of my other friends who got it right. And they just look at me. And with this, this look of disbelief and anger, and I always kind of push back on them and I'm like, just like stand firm. Like, don't let me do this to you. Like I'm telling you right now, this is what I do. Please don't let that happen. And then they continue to let it happen. So anyways, it's, it's a real problem. (laughs) So you wrote a good article on this where you talk about your cap system. And I think that was confidence, authenticity, and persuasion. It sounds like persuasion is really your, your strong point there, but can you talk me through those three steps? Yeah, so I think when we're thinking about speaking, if you can become confident and authentic, that generally takes you the majority of the way there as a speaker. Like if someone sees that you're confident, that that feels like confidence to the audience. And there's this weird dynamic where just appearing confident actually increases the level of competency that your audience thinks that you have. It shouldn't, but it does. So that's where a lot of, you know, if we think of like the Jordan Belforts and, and people of that nature, they're so wildly confident in the way that they approach people that people believe them even though they shouldn't right this world you get like pyramid schemes and ponzi schemes and all this sort of thing because they're so confident in the way they deliver it people believe them but that's a, a whole different set of of discussion points when it comes to confidence like if you hit that people start to believe you they want to gravitate towards you then if you're authentic that's where you actually become likable so when i think about speaking you want to always be credible and you want to be likable confidence makes you credible the authenticity makes you likable. So that's where we start to hit these two things because that's what people are looking for. Do I trust this person? And do I like this person? That's what makes people buy into you. Now that gets you about 90% of the way there. And when we're talking about authenticity, this is also one of those mistakes that a lot of people make is they think they only have one authentic self. They think like this entire being, they have to put it all out there. And the truth is when you're a speaker, you're putting the best authentic version of yourself in front of your audience. 
And so this is like, for me, an easy example is if I'm in Texas, I say y'all a lot more because that is a way it is authentic to me. I use that term, but I play it up even further. I can slow down a little bit and go into like a Texas drawl, bring in a little bit of an accent, because again, I understand that that's part of who I am and it relates to my audience. But if I'm speaking to a group of you know, Silicon Valley investors or in New York and a bunch of business people, I'm not going to be using y'all. I'm going to speed up my pacing. I'm going to speak their language. Again, it's authentic to who I am. It's just a different piece. Just like I can be a surfer, like I can speak surfer language. I can speak CrossFit language. I can speak baseball language. I can speak lawyer language. It doesn't matter. Those are all authentic selves. And depending on my audience, I use that, right? And so when we think about authenticity, it's true to who we are, but it's the best authentic version of ourselves. That, in my opinion, will take you 90% of the way if you hit confidence and you hit authenticity. Persuasion, though, is that last 10%. That's where you really start playing around with some of these ideas of rhetoric skills and oratory techniques and things of that nature. And how do we structure it? How do we frame things? How do we turn weaknesses into strengths? How do we bury things that are maybe bad facts to our, to our case or things that we're talking about? How do we link to other ideas to bring credibility more into what we're talking about? So when we get into this persuasion piece, that's where if you've got those first two and you add in persuasion, it's almost impossible to lose. And you can honestly get to this point where you have to basically rein yourself back in to say, there's a lot of things I could convince people to do, but that's not how I want to use this. So I've got to pull back from that kind of instinct that you develop over time, especially as a trial lawyer, where my job all the time is to convince people I'm right. So sometimes you have to pull back and realize to be human and to be a good person, we don't want to be that way. I love this system. And when you talk about authenticity, it reminds me of another guest I had on the show. His name is Ramesh Nagaraja. And he wrote a really good article called, titled uh, Reflections from a Token Black Friend. And he published this like very shortly after the George Floyd incident. And it had a ton of good points in it. And when he was on my show, he talked about code switching, which is essentially exactly what you're talking about. Like when you're in Texas, you talk with a drawl and you say y'all. And when you're in New York, you speak a little bit differently. And it all comes back to authenticity. And I don't think we necessarily made that connection in our conversation, but he said that the way he talks to his black friends that he went to high school with is different than how he talks to his college friends or maybe people who he works with or whatever. So it's kind of cool to see that overlap there. It's, it's the same idea for sure. I'd like to dive into the nitty gritty of performative speaking. So as a concept, what is performative speaking? So as a concept, performative speaking is the ability to use other forms of art as inspiration pieces for the speaker themselves to connect with their audience in an emotional way. So in practice, what that actually looks like is for me, let's say my favorite show of all time is The West Wing. Tons of inspiration from there, tons of insight. Like I, I love that show. And so for me, a lot of times when I'm trying to figure out, hey, I've, I'm going to speak to this audience or I'm going to be delivering this talk. I'm going to be giving this presentation or I'm working with a founder on fundraising and I want them to make the investors feel a certain way. I go back to these sources like the West Wing and figure out like, when did I feel a certain emotion from watching a scene and then start reverse engineering that? What about that scene made me feel this way? Why did I feel inspired to take some sort of action? Why did I feel this melancholy like sorrow overcome me? And how can I use that? when I'm actually speaking. And so like, what are the tools available to me that I have to recreate that? Because I don't have a Hollywood budget, right? I'm not going to be able to play with lighting and music and all this other stuff, but I can use things like rhythm and tone and pacing and volume and how we structure a talk and how do we 
make it intimate or make it very over the top and you know very passionate there are all these different skill sets you can bring in so really it comes down to understanding the experiences that each individual has lived the things that speak to them the you know art pieces the sculptures the architecture the food the travel experiences the life stories that they've felt something and using those to help them speak from a place of expertise when it comes to emotion because at the end of the day if we create emotion in our audience and we back it up with content we back it up with those facts and numbers and evidence and all the things you need that's what ultimately gets a audience to take that action that we're trying to achieve as a speaker now beyond that the word performative right means performance art and when we think about the word performativity it means the ability for words to bring about change so when we bring those two together performance art and the ability for words to bring about change that's really what i believe and that's why i named it what i did what type of person should care about performative speaking so, I mean, I'll say this, I think every person needs to be a good speaker. Like, I think that that's just a basic human skill, but the truth is what I'm teaching is definitely at a higher level. It is not for somebody who is a high schooler trying to figure out the basics of just putting words and sentences together. Like that's, that's not it. If you're in a speech class in your freshman year of high school, like this is not what I'm teaching you. Can you get benefit out of it? Of course. And do I want those people to get benefit and value out of it? Of course. But this really is thinking about that person who's built a level of experience or built a level of expertise, some sort of skill set in their career, and now is trying to take it to the next level, is trying to take on a more leadership role, is trying to get more public facing, is trying to start their own company. These are the people that really will benefit from this idea of performative speaking because they've lived a life long enough to have these experiences to draw on. And they're also at a, a phase in their life where speaking is that force multiplier, that amplifier for their voice and for their skills to go further. And so those are really the people that I'm generally working with are a lot of creatives, a lot of founders, a lot of investors, you know, professionals in the executive world are, are very much gravitating towards this program to learn these skills and really accelerate their career development. So if you take that, that stereotypical person that you're talking about, just that average person, what are two or three things that that person could do like right now to become a better storyteller? What are, what's the 80, 20 of performative speaking? So we, we kind of have two pieces when we're thinking about speaking and it's first, you need to sound like a great speaker and then you need to become a great speaker. And I say that because if you don't sound like a great speaker, even if you have the best strategy in the world, it, people aren't going to listen to you because if you're a mess and you're rambling and you're tons of filler words and you can't, string sentences together, you're just not gonna be heard. And so first we've gotta deal with the basics and that's pacing of how, how you talk. So if you talk very fast, we've gotta slow it down because that helps you remove so many different things that helps you create dynamics in the way that you speak. So when we, we think about dynamics, I oftentimes am really thinking about speed and volume. And speed and volume, right? If we go faster, what we're trying to signal to our audience is we're excited or we're building anticipation. However, if you're speaking too fast to begin with, when you speed up, all your audience hears is you're out of control. So now you've lost that dynamic range. And you also can't slow down because when you slow down, your audience feels like, oh, they just went back to their normal pacing or what should have been going on. So if we slow down to begin with, and then we slow down further, it adds a level of drama, a level of weight to the words and really kind of emphasizes them. And Michelle Obama is a great example of this. She does a wonderful job. Barack Obama, her husband does a great job with this as well, where they really slow down 
and embrace that. It also lets you take pauses, lets you do silence more effectively. It lets you cut out the filler words because you're not in such a rush to keep up with like what's coming out of your mouth. Your brain isn't losing track. You're able to self-edit. So like the 80-20 to just sounding like a great speaker is slowing down. And this is get in that range of 110 to 140 words per minute, live in that space. You can practice with apps that will give you kind of guidance as to how quickly you're speaking so you can really develop this skill set. Once we get that piece, then we can move into this more strategy piece. And that, that big, the 80-20 is the five, the five piece framework that I have for performance speaking is the 80-20 piece. If you start working through that every single time, you're gonna see results. And that's simply, what's my goal? What's the emotion I wanna create? What's my hook? What's my theme? And what's my dismount? And I really think those first two are more strategy pieces and those last three are more your tactic pieces when it comes to the actual talk itself. That's a great framework. It seems very simple to work through, but not, not an easy thing to achieve. Do you have a group of speakers that you like to study or specific speeches that you point people to as an example of like, this is what you should be working towards? It depends on the person because I always want every person I work with to embrace their own voice. Like I, I'm very fond of saying, I don't want to create another Robbie Crabtree. Like we have one of me, no one else needs to sound like me. <laughs> I want everybody to sound different. So when people are like, I want to sound like, you know, the one I get the most commonly these days is Barack Obama or Michelle Obama. And rightfully so, great speakers, but it's great to learn from them, but we don't want to sound exactly like them because that's their voice. And we need to help people figure out their own voice. So some of the examples I love to give is like, honestly, just like what resonates with you? And, and if you can figure that out, like let's start building that out. Now, there's obviously great examples. Martin Luther King Jr. is one that I listen to very regularly. I listen to a lot of Obama. I listen to quite a bit of Matthew McConaughey as well. Like, I just mm. like the style that he speaks with. Like, it's very authentic, very genuine. It's just very warm and inviting. Then there's people like Brené Brown and Nancy Duarte who do great jobs as well when it comes to storytelling and how do they deliver that talk. Uh, I've been very fortunate to see tons of great lawyers over my career as well. And that was super helpful for me. You can do a lot too in movies and television and study those types of people. Like there's a great speech in Avengers Endgame right when Captain America is delivering that speech before they go and actually try to get the, the Infinity Stones back. And if you listen to him and the way he delivers it, it's very calm, it's very slow, lots of big pauses, lots of drama. That's a great source too. Obviously I'm partial to the West Wing. I point people to this idea. If you wanna to learn to be a great speaker, and I'm not kidding, you can go and study the West Wing. If you watch season one, through seven, you will become a better speaker just by watching the way Aaron Sorkin writes, listening to the dialogue that they create and picking up on the, all these rhetoric tools and oratory skills that are used by the president, by candidates, by the way that speechwriters actually break it down. It's, it is as good as I've ever seen. And you can learn so much. Like there are clips that I use and I'm like, you, I can just rattle off. Here's five different techniques that they used in this one minute clip. And if you can do one of these well, you will go far as a speaker. I, I love that concept. It's, it's such a great idea. I try to do the same thing with my writing. I try to read writers who I really enjoy and not so much copy their, their style or their voice, but just like kind of use that as a mental framework for myself of like, hey, maybe I should be doing things like this. So I think that's a, that's a cool thing to think about. So you gave a good talk in ODW the other night. And one of the things that really like struck me that I hadn't thought about before, but when you said it, I was like, oh, that makes perfect sense. You talked about the difference between factual and emotional truth. Can you explain that? 
So factual truth is what most people think they want to be speaking with in terms of, especially when it comes to stories, because they think, well, if I just present the facts the way that they are, that's what we're taught, right? Is don't essentially don't lie. And that people mistake that with factual truth. And that means I'm going to tell it exactly how it happened to me and expect the audience to understand it. Like I understood it. But the problem is the audience doesn't have your life experience. They don't understand what you've gone through to get there. They don't understand your fears, your phobias. They don't understand the things that light you up, that excite you. They don't know your background. They don't know anything about, like if I was to deliver a story right now, people would have no idea about most of my life because they didn't live it, but I did. So I have experiences that frame the way that I see the world. So when I think about delivering stories, what we actually want to achieve is emotional truth. We want to connect with the audience. We want them to feel what we felt. That's the purpose of a of a story is to connect emotionally, right? We're not just trying to relay facts. That is completely against what storytelling is all about. Storytelling is about creating connection. And facts, if we ever study human psychology and study kind of the persuasion tactics, facts don't connect to each other. Like those are very dry and boring concepts. So if we create emotion, we connect. So emotional truth is this idea of, I want the audience to feel it the way that I felt it. And the example I used the other night, and I'll use it again because it's, it's a very clear example, is let's say, for instance, I was terrified of dogs because when I was younger, maybe I got attacked. And so I just had this fear of them. No matter how big, no matter how nice or how mean, like they just scare me. So let's say one day I'm walking along the street and I see a dog and it's a 25 pound dog, nothing serious. But to me, that hits that trigger. And all of a sudden that childhood trauma I went through comes out and I, I'm concerned that this dog is going to just mutilate me, rip me limb from limb, and I'm terrified. So I take off running, and I feel the dog chasing me, and I make it over the fence, and I think to myself, like, wow, that was really close. Like, I could have ended up dead right here if I didn't make it over this fence. Because of my experience, that was a true feeling, and that's what was going through my mind, even as silly as it may sound. Well, if I give that as a factual story to an audience, they're going to laugh at me and say, Robbie, what are you talking about? Like, this makes no sense. So now I've taken a, a story that was very serious to me in the moment and has turned into a funny and humorous story for the audience. Like that, that, that is so incongruent with one another that like, why would I be telling that factually accurate? I've completely destroyed the whole purpose behind this, this talk. Instead, if we focus on emotional truth, we do things like this. I was walking along the street the other day and all of a sudden I turned and I saw this dog. I saw it open its mouth and started to snarl at me. I could see those teeth. I didn't know what was about to happen. All that went through my mind was this dog's coming after me and I've got to make it to that fence. If I don't make it to that fence, it's going to be bad. So I took off and all of a sudden, as I took off, I looked over my shoulder and the dog is chasing me and it's catching on me, catching me step by step. I'm losing ground, losing ground. And I know if I don't get to this fence and get over it, there's no telling what's going to happen. But luckily, I made it over that fence. And just as I did, the dog jumped up on the fence, teeth out, ready to rip me, ready to bite me, ready to take me down. Now, in that story right there, I don't ever say that it was a 25-pound dog. I'm also, though, not making something up. I'm not saying that it was an 80-pound dog, right? I'm just trying to make it more emotionally true as to what I experienced so my audience can do that. And there's a great example of this with Tim O'Brien and the things they carry. It's about the Vietnam War. And it's an incredible book. And it's so over the top that as you're reading it, you clearly identify that this is over the top. Like there's no way these things really happen. But the purpose of that is because they feel so over the top to the reader, 
It is to bring that emotional truth as to what soldiers in Vietnam felt. They felt like it was so over the top too, because they couldn't believe the experiences that they were having to go through. And this is the only way to really share a story so that the reader or the listener can fully understand what that person felt in the moment. I love that. You just told the same story twice. And the first time I pictured like Toto from the Wizard of Oz. And the second time I pictured this nasty Doberman just bearing down on you. And, and you didn't, you didn't lie in the second one. You told the same story. So it's powerful. I like that. In the same talk the other night, you, you mentioned that everybody should have a list of go-to stories. Can you tell one of yours? So I, I kind of list go-to stories as this. Go-to stories are something that have adventure, adversity, triumph, and then some humor. So one that I love to give is back in 2020, uh, 2019, I was out in Japan. And I was sitting there in Tokyo and everything was closed. I couldn't figure out why everything is closed because a little typhoon was coming to hit Tokyo. And I was like, I'm from Houston. Like I'm used to hurricanes. It's no big deal. So I'm sitting in, in the park Hyatt up at the top and I'm watching the hurricane or the typhoon as they call it roll in thinking, you know what, this is cool. Like this is a once in a lifetime experience. Tokyo doesn't get hit by typhoons very often. This will be fun. But again, everyone's closed. Everything's closed. People obviously are concerned, but I'm not. Anyways, I, I'm hanging out up there and they tell me it's last call. Like we've got to close it down. Weather's getting bad. You need to go home. So I'm like, all right, well, this kind of sucks because my last night in Tokyo and I wanted to enjoy it and have some fun, but I guess we're, we're going home. So I went home that night. No big deal. Went to sleep, woke up the next morning. It felt like everything was completely normal. There were a few more leaves on the ground than there normally were because Tokyo is extremely clean. And that was the only indication I had that anything had gone on. And in Tokyo, in order to get to the airport, you take the train. They're very dependent on their trains. Cars are not something that they use. So I pull up Google because I needed to make sure everything was running smoothly because I don't speak the language, obviously. And I check and it says trains running smoothly. No issue there. Now, normally I would check Twitter, except the problem is when you're in Japan, Twitter is obviously in Japanese. And Google Translate does not do a good job at all when it comes to Japanese to English. So as I'm going there, I'm like, well, Google says it's fine, so it must be fine. So I get my 65 pound suitcase because I'd been there for two weeks and I overpacked like I always do and ended up carrying that along and walking down the street. And it's summertime, it's September, it's 90 degrees outside, it's humid. And I'm in jeans and a sweater because I'm like, ah, I'm about to get on a plane. I need to make sure that I'm you know, dressed appropriately. So I walk and I walk and I walk and I finally get to the, the train station. I go in and in this train station, all of a sudden I'm waiting. And I realized, hey, the time the train was supposed to be here, it just passed. And in Japan, their trains always run on time. So I start to get a little bit concerned, but I pull up Google again. And it says, nope, everything's good. Everything's good. So I hang out there for a little bit longer. No train, no train, no train. And finally, I, I asked somebody like, hey, is, is the train coming? They say, oh, no, it, it, the, the track is, is stopped up ahead. So no train's coming here. So I went and I talked to somebody who worked in the train station and said, hey, like, what do I do? Can I go to a different station and then I can catch it there? No, no, it's actually shut down. You need to go to this hotel where you can get a bus. I said, great, okay. So I had to walk to this hotel. 15 minutes away, I'm pulling my suitcase, I'm pouring down sweat as I continue to go to this hotel. And I think, you know, it's fine though because I've still got around four hours to get to the airport in order to make it. I left in plenty of time, no worries. 
I get to the, the hotel and when I get to the hotel, all of a sudden I am just accosted by security people as though I was about to come and do something terrible to the hotel. No idea. I'm trying to speak to them in English because I don't speak Japanese. They don't speak English. So we're just like yelling back and forth. And I'm just trying to get in the hotel to figure out how do I get on a bus to get to the airport so I can get home? Because here's the trick. I had a trial starting that week. If I didn't make it to my flight, I wasn't making it to that trial. If I didn't make it to that trial, there was going to be a real issue both for me personally and also for me professionally. So when it came to it, I just continued to kind of talk and try to get louder and get somebody's attention. And finally, someone from the, the hotel comes out and says, oh, you're trying to get the bus. Come on in. So I go on in. I say, great. Like, I need to take the bus. And they tell me, hey, the bus is actually shut down for the rest of the day. There's an accident on the one major road to get to the airport. And it's taking people over four hours to get there. So the bus is no longer running. As I said earlier in my story, I had four hours to get there. So that, how can I get there? So I pull up Uber thinking, oh, I'll just Uber. No Ubers. Because the road was so bad, the Ubers were completely shut down too. They didn't want to sit in traffic and do this. So I said, how do I get a taxi? They put me in line to get a taxi. And I, I finally ended up getting one after about 30 minutes. We ended up having to go about 50 miles outside of the normal route in order to get there. Because that was the only way or else I was going to miss my flight. I told them I have three and a half hours at this point to get there. I need you to make sure I get there. So we go and we're driving around. I'm checking Google the entire time, seeing like checking it, checking it, checking it. And if you know when you're on an inter international flight, you have to be there 90 minutes ahead in order to check your bag. So I'm thinking, well, this is disastrous. I'm about to lose my 65 pounds of luggage and have to leave it behind because I've just got to make this flight. And that's the end of, end of that. So as we get closer to the airport, I'm like, all right, great. Like, we're going to make it. I'm going to get my flight. All is good. Except then we get to the airport and we're about a half mile away and I can see the airport in the distance. Slam traffic, absolute dead stop. Nobody is moving. And I think this is, this is the end. I'm going to get that close. I'm going to see it. I'm going to watch my plane take off as I sit here in this taxi. So I finally just threw my credit card at, at the driver and, and make him take it. And I'm like, I, I just got to get out and run. So I get out and I just start running. I'm running half a mile now with my 65 pound suitcase, trying to get to the airport. Again, just drenched in sweat because the entire time in the taxi, he's not running the air conditioner. And the other problem is I'm so stressed that like, I can't stop sweating. I'm checking my phone the entire time, the entire three hours that we're on the road, I'm checking it. So I've got 30 minutes by the time I get out of this cab to hopefully catch my flight. I still had to check in because all the phone service was down. I still had to hopefully check my bag. I still had to run the half mile with my bag in order to get there. And I also needed to drop off my wireless, my portable Wi-Fi that I had rented in the airport. Something this is disastrous. There's no way I'm going to make it. One fun fact too, the taxi cost me more than the entire trip for the round trip flight oh because God. of how long it took. <laughs> so as I'm running, I'm like, not only did I, am I going to miss my flight? I'm going to be charged an arm and a leg to get here. Then I'm going to have to go back to my hotel and stay an extra day, buy a new flight and figure all this stuff out. And I'm going to miss a trial. Just a, a horrendous kind of run of luck, it felt like. So as I run, I'm running, I'm running, I'm running. I'm avoiding other cars that are opening up their doors and people are trying to do the same thing as me. And I finally get in the airport. And again, just super drenched, couldn't be worse. And I go to the counter and it was Singapore Air that I was flying. And there's about 10 people, 10 Singapore Air employees all surrounding there. And I just go and I'm like, I'm so sorry. Like, I know that I'm super late. I know you're not going to be able to check my bag and all this. And they're like, no, no, no. Like, it's okay. Like, we're, we're going to be able to make it work. And I'm thinking, okay, great. Like, we might have finally made it. Except as they're about to check my bag, I'm like, this is not a good idea. I'm drenched. Like, my clothing is soaking wet from this experience. I'm like, what am I going to do? I don't have time to run. This is a giant airport. I don't have time to find the bathroom. I don't have time to go change anywhere. And I just turn to the people at the counter working. I go, 
I'm so sorry. And I just started disrobing. And I started changing directly in front of them. As I'm doing this, all I can hear are little giggles while my shirt is coming out over my head. And when I finally get my shirt off and the people, all these 10 employees are just looking at me and it's about half men, half women, the men are just standing there flexing and saying muscle man and pointing at me. <laughs> and the women are just giggling at me as I'm doing this. So all the, the entire time I'm doing this, I finally change, get everything on, give them my suitcase and I'm running to drop off my Wi-Fi, And all I hear from behind me is muscle man, muscle man, as I run to the gate. I did make it. I did make it back to that trial and we did win that case. Nice. That's an awesome story. I love that. I love how, so you can see, like, if you know your, your technique, you can see the different parts that you introduce there, the tension, the conflict, the hook at the beginning. Um, it's, it's great. It's good stuff. All right, Robbie, I'd like to talk a little bit more about the background of how you went from like A to Z in performative speaking. And it, it seems to me looking from the outside, um, that this happened in three main steps, the first of which kind of being rite of passage. So what led you to write a passage and why did you take that course? I think I took it in all honesty because we were in the, the height of COVID and being a trial lawyer meant I wasn't really working because the courts were shut down. So I had time and I was interested in that program, but actually what sold it to me was David's 10 year vision. Mm. And I remember reading that article and I was like, Oh, like he's, He's thinking bigger than just like, this is online writing. He was thinking in terms of business and building things as well. And that really spoke to me because I was like, I mean, yes, I want to write and that's cool. And I love writing. Don't get me wrong. But I wasn't in a place where I felt like I needed a lot of teaching when it came to writing. So I was more taking it because I thought David was doing something really cool. I wanted to see how he was structuring that. And I was really inspired by his vision to help his students build things themselves and kind of create this, you know, almost empire from people who have gone through Rite of Passage and built afterwards. So that's actually what hooked me on the course and why I signed up was I, I'd seen it, I'd seen it because he was involved in Jack Butcher's Design Fundamentals course. And I'd gotten to know David, a little, not personally know him, but I followed him from his talk with Matthew Kobach when it came to how to crush Twitter. And I wasn't sold on the course until I saw that 10 year vision piece that came out. And I said, all right, that's the moment. So I signed, I literally read that signed up as soon as I finished it, which just goes to show great writing really can influence people if you do it, do it right. And David is a prime example of that. So that's what led me to take that course. What were some of your most important takeaways from it? Because I know when I took the course, the information collection system was huge for me. And then like thinking about curation pieces for building the audience. So like I took away some really important things from it and you took it one or two cohorts after I did. So I imagine it kind of developed. So what were your takeaways? My biggest takeaways are actually probably a bit different from yours in terms of one, I wanted, I thought it was really important creating a personal website. And that's one of the things David pushes because I think that that's kind of that beginning of the journey of owning your name. Mm. And I think that that's incredibly important is just really embracing like, I'm not a, I'm not a business, I'm a person. And like, if I can own my name, Robbie Crabtree, and people know what that means, that's incredibly valuable. So for me, just starting that personal website was incredibly important. I took that away. Two, I took away this idea of serendipity comes from putting online writing out there. Like you just don't know what's gonna happen if you put your work and your ideas out into the public space. 
those were honestly like the two biggest things that I took away from more of like David's approach. And then obviously from Rite of Passage itself, like the big piece that came out of that was how to build community, how incredible the group of people was, and like really kind of finding this group of like-minded individuals who I wanted to continue to develop friendships with, develop working relationships with, and just continue to grow alongside of, of all the cool things that they were doing. So then after that course, and after, I guess, a couple of Jack Butcher's courses as well, then you start to build performative speaking. So I'd like to talk about that. But before we get to it, I kind of want to hear your background with public speaking and teaching kind of in another setting and like just hear the general qualifications that made you think like, hey, I need to teach this course. Sure. So, I mean, if we go far back in high school, I was competing in contemporaneous speaking which I didn't realize was even a thing until a teacher told me, Hey, I think you'd be good at this and you should try it out. And then I was good. And then that teacher hated me every uh, year because the state finals were at the same time as the baseball state championship. Mm. And I always chose the baseball state championship (laughs) over going to the state finals that I had qualified for. So that never made them happy, but I love that. And it was super cool. And I think that was a stage I didn't realize that I was, good at speaking. I think I just thought everybody was, and they just randomly chose me. I also was delivering talks in front of prospective students because I went to a private high school in Houston. And so when, you know, 500,000 parents and students would come to check out the school on the big, big kind of weekend, I was one of three people that would get up there and talk to them about why this school is such a good fit and what I've gotten out of it and my experience and all these sort of things. So again, I just thought that that was like a random thing and they like didn't have anybody else who was willing to do it. And I thought I was kind of like a last resort, but it it turns out that it might've been, I was actually good at this stuff. (laughs) So then I go to college. I don't really focus on it much there because I'm just a history major. I mean, I wrote a senior thesis, so I had to defend that thesis, which was very comfortable for me as well. And, And again, I don't think I realized that that was anything unique at the time, but I guess looking back and talking to people defending a thesis can be very challenging, whereas it really wasn't for me. It was just a lot of fun to kind of talk about those ideas. But then in law school is really where it started to develop. So I went to SMU Law School and I pretty quickly realized being a trial lawyer was what was appealing to me. Like it seemed fun. It seemed like it suited my skill set. And all of a sudden I had a bunch of success in oral advocacy type courses. And then I joined the national mock trial team at SMU as well. So during my time there, I was competing across the the nation in different tournaments, which led me to becoming a trial lawyer. Once I graduated, I started working as a trial lawyer for the past seven years. I ended up trying 102 jury trials. I spent a lot of time doing violent felonies and child abuse cases. I've done them both on the prosecution side and the defense side. I also work on civil rights cases and wrongful death type cases. So that is where I started to build a lot of that skill set in that background. But then also in my fifth year as a lawyer, I was asked to come back and teach at SMU Law School and teach what they call oral advocacy, which is a fancy name for saying persuasive speaking. And then I also was asked to coach the national mock trial team, the one that I had previously been on and coach that for the students who are now on it and run trials and go through all that process and travel across the nation and lead them and hopefully win some stuff and and do good things. So I've been doing that as well over the last three years. In fact, we were supposed to be competing this week. I have two teams that are supposed to be competing, but due to the weather, 
in Texas and all the craziness that's going on here, it's actually been postponed to next week. Mm. So like, I'm still involved in that. I'm still teaching those skills at SMU law school and continue to be involved in that way as well. So are you still practicing law? I do still practice law. I generally only take on a few cases at a time at this point in my career, because with everything else going on, I don't need to take on the volume. And so I get to be very, very selective and only take on the cases that really speak to me that I think need the skill set that I have and that I'm very passionate about. So it's been, it's been a nice change of pace to say, I don't need to be like every other law firm that takes any case that walks through the door. I can take the one, two, or three that really kind of light that fire inside of me. And I can say, I want to go you know, really help this person who is wronged in a really terrible way. Was there a specific moment that made you say like, all right, I want to really dial back on my law practice and move into teaching? Or was it just kind of a serendipitous process? No, I think it's, it's something I was always aware of because when I say, I, I kind of say it this way, being a lawyer is all about minimizing risk. That's your job is to make sure the worst thing doesn't happen. When you're in this space, helping people, whether it's become a great speaker or helping founders fundraise and get like kind of their, their vision off the ground, you're maximizing rewards. You're maximizing the upside. You're going for the very best outcome. Mm. So for me, it's so much more rewarding to work towards the best outcome than to make sure the worst thing doesn't happen. So that is really what kind of attracted me to this space. And like, I always knew that even in law school, I said, I want to become a trial lawyer. I want to develop these skills because I know if I do, it will separate me. It will be something that I can leverage long-term, whether that's in some capacity still as a lawyer or outside of the legal profession, because very few people develop these skills. Because being a trial lawyer is all about understanding human psychology and persuasion and game theory and strategy and like effective communication and negotiation. Like even when I listen to somebody like a Chris Foss, who was the FBI hostage negotiation guy, anytime I listen to him talk, I'm like, yeah, this is everything he's saying is exactly what you see as a trial lawyer in negotiations with opposing counsel. Like that's just a constant thing. And so you start to build this skill set that's very, very unique that allows you to translate it now to a much broader audience, just like he's doing taking his FBI hostage negotiation tactics, bringing them into like a more real world and widely accepted space. I'm doing the same with being a trial lawyer and helping people understand these skills. And so again, it comes down to, do I want to minimize risk or do I want to maximize reward? I want to maximize reward. That's a lot more fun for me. Of course. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I think, I think you make a good point here that is really applicable for anybody in any field. And that is to find the things that are useful in your field, the skills that are useful in your field, but not only useful in your field, and then figure out how you can apply those to other disciplines and overlap them in other areas. And I think the most effective people are the ones who develop these soft skills, I guess maybe you want to call them, um, and link them together and build their frameworks and mental maps and then apply those to as many uh, different areas as possible. So when you started building performative speaking, I guess it seems like you went from zero to launch really, really quickly. So I'm interested in what systems or frameworks you use to take all of your expertise and present it as a, a class. So it did happen very fast and also happened very slow, right? If we think about that process, it was developing over the entire career of being in law school, being a trial lawyer, 
being a teacher at SMU, coaching the national mock trial team, and then to performance speaking. So like, it's a long process, but it's also very short because essentially what happened is it was like beginning of August that I did the, the hot seat exercise and rite of passage and got a ton of feedback from people saying they were interested in a course that I would offer along these lines. And so once I had that signal, I just went ahead and, and went full steam ahead. And I basically realized there was an opportunity and just went straight into action. In terms of those frameworks and things, systems to develop it, at the end of the day, being both a lawyer and a speaker, you realize don't recreate the wheel. Like if somebody's doing something well, find a way to use that and build on top of it. Mm -hmm. And David was doing a really great job in Rite of Passage. But I said, he's figured out this formula. He's figured out the framework to build this thing out. So I just took his syllabus from Rite of Passage 5 and put it in front of me. And I brought my syllabus from what I teach at SMU Law School and said, how do I merge these two together so that they make sense? And then rearrange it and, and figure all those things out. That's where I started working from. And that allowed me to put into place a very easy to follow structure in a very quick way. Not only that, I was able to use like, I just basically copied again, his tech stack. I used Teachable, I used Circle, and I used Zoom, right? So I didn't have to go and think through like, what, what program am I going to use? What platform am I going to use? What does a syllabus even look like? What things are important to have inside of a community? How do you build that out? I was like, I've been in them. I've seen what works. Now I just need to recreate it with my own kind of spin and my own sort of take on it. And I think that's super helpful to realize that there are so many examples out there that you can just essentially replace their stuff with your stuff to remove a lot of that guesswork and remove a lot of that paralysis that so many people come into when, it, when they're thinking about how do I design something? How do I create something? You're not starting at zero. You really never are. You just got to find the right people to help you. And I was fortunate too. I mean, David offered plenty of help. Jack Butcher offered plenty of help. Clay Bear offered plenty of help. Justin McElroy offered plenty of help. And then Andrew Barry too, who was in that Rite of Passage 5 and was a mentor and now is actually running the on-deck course creator program. He was a huge advisor and helped me throughout that process as well, as well as a number of other people, Charlotte Crowther, who, who does a lot of this work with the Forte Academy people too. Like I was just finding who's doing this stuff well and then trying to reach out to them and get as much help or insight as I could. And people were incredibly gracious with their time and their you know, input for my process. And they got excited and people started reaching out to me. And this is another one of those things going back to what David had to write about that I took away this serendipity vehicle of writing online. By putting out what I called the performative speaking manifesto, it attracted people to what I was building. And so that's where I started to get a lot of people who were in the space reaching out to me and say, I want to talk to you. I want to help you. So there's always this value in just putting that out there and seeing what happens. Two really important points there. The first one is work smarter, not harder. That's something that my dad has taught me from the time I was a little kid. And you really, really use that one here. The second is steal like an artist. And this is something, it's an idea from Austin Cleon, but David yeah. teaches it in his course. And I think it's one of those things that it's really hard for a lot of people to wrap their heads around, especially people who are trying to write or podcast or, or do creative things. They think, I don't have anything original to share. Well, Nobody really does. You're just kind of remixing the best things that other people had and putting your own spin on them, which is exactly what you did with this course. Um, and it allowed you to go from basically zero to a course with a, a bunch of a bunch of people in it in two months, right? Two three months. Yeah, we 
I, I announced that in August and started a landing page, getting email collection. And we ran the first course October 19th. It kicked off with 35 people. That's amazing. And then in December, I think it was, performative speaking is acquired by On Deck. Yeah, wild, wild, wild events. <laughs> I, it, it happened very fast. And it was just one of those situations where, again, let's go back to this idea of serendipity in communities and serendipity in writing. The person who ended up putting my name in front of On Deck for this type of thing was Tom White, who was in Rite of Passage 5. Mm. We never, we never communicated in Rite of Passage, like we never came across each other, but we, I knew Tom, like I saw him in the program and he saw me. And so we, we saw each other's work and he started following and was seeing what I was doing. So he put that name in front of them. Then On Deck was asking other people in On Deck, does anybody know this guy, Robbie Crabtree? And there's Nate Forster, who runs the ODF candidates process, so the On Deck founders process. He talked to Eric Tornberg about all the things he follows from me because he followed me on Twitter and was reading my writing and was, was saying all sorts of nice things. And the craziest thing is they never interacted with me. They never liked anything I had, like never liked a, a tweet, never replied to a tweet never sent an email, never interacted. But it again goes back to this idea of serendipity by creating online and putting your thoughts and your vision out for the world to see. It resonated with them to the point that they were willing to go and talk to the founder of On Deck and say, this should be the guy you bring in because he's doing this and understands it. And then here, you know, that started the conversation with Eric. And then I went through, you know, very fast rounds of discussion because I was getting ready for the next cohort of my program and ultimately ended up agreeing to the acquisition of the performance speaking, you know, cohort based course. Yeah. I didn't know that Tom is the one who made that original connection. So Tom was my editor for the rite of passage fellowship. So that's how I was introduced to him. He introduced me to on deck. I knew of on deck, but he's the one who convinced me to do ODW and he's become a good friend. And man, that guy is a super connector. He's just making connections in all different places. It's a good person to know. For sure. Tom's great. It seems like on on deck and and you, Robbie, are writing the playbook for how a course gets acquired. I, I don't think I've seen anything else like this happen. So as much as you're able to talk about it, how did you structure that deal? Yeah, for sure. It I, I do think it's the first one that's been like a cohort-based course to be acquired. I'm sure that will change over time and it'll happen more and more. But I think it's always important for a creator to understand to keep their intellectual property, right? You don't ever want to sell that. You don't want to sell your ideas. And I think that that was very important for me. And one of the things I talked to other creators who maybe have started to think about this idea, I'm like, do not make, make sure you keep your intellectual property. Like that has to be the thing because that's, that's your thoughts. That's your brain. That's your future. And so for me, that was the big piece. As long as they were willing to agree to let me keep my IP, like everything on deck is building is very much what I want to build as well. I want to help people change the world. And I, and I, I that sounds silly, but in all honesty, the, the way that I think about it is how can I help people who have world-changing ideas actually communicate their ideas to change the world? Because so much of what we're seeing now is there's noise everywhere. How do you cut through the noise? How do these great ideas, how do these founders actually get their idea out there to 
investors, to employees, and to customers. You've got to be able to communicate. You've got to be able to drive these ideas forward. Like I'm never going to create, you know, the next, like I'm not going to create the solution to climate change. I'm not going to create the solution for how to better use Bitcoin. Like that's just not who I am. Like I don't have those skills, but I can help the people who are doing this sort of stuff to communicate their ideas so that they can achieve that. And so that can be my role. And that's really exciting because those are the types of people who are attracted to on deck as well. Ambitious, driven individuals, but who are also very focused on bettering the world and also building community, which is very exciting to me. So for me, that made a lot of sense. And I think of the acquisition a little bit like Joe Rogan with Spotify in a lot of ways. It's a, a lot of, you know, like he's licensing all the stuff to them and they have the platform that he works through. And that is very much kind of how, how my agreement with on deck kind of looks um, in terms of, right, like, because I still own the IP, like it's still mine. I'm just bringing it into on deck and running it through there because I can scale my impact. We're aligned very closely. And it's just, it, it really ended up being a no brainer because we were so closely aligned in what we're trying to achieve. So when I was talking earlier about why don't I want to be a lawyer? It's because I don't, I, instead of minimizing risk, I want to maximize rewards. Mm. Well, what better place to do that than add an on deck instead of trying to do it all on my own? It allows me to maximize those rewards, work with the most people, scale my impact in the most meaningful way. And it also allows me, I wrote a piece recently about this, online education to me is not the gold rush, it's the airplane. It's democratizing the ability for people to learn mm. and have really high quality education, also high quality communities, because no longer do they have to get a visa to come to the US and apply to a Harvard and get in and go through that process and pay tens of thousands of dollars to do it. Now they can stay wherever they live. They can stay in China, Southeast Asia. They can stay in Europe. They can stay in South America. They could be in Brazil and, and still take the same course that people in Silicon Valley are taking from the same instructors at, the same, at a cost that is affordable to them and not have to deal with all of the other kind of gatekeepers that prevented them from doing that in the, in the past. So what OnDeck is doing is it allows me to achieve that, it allows me to offer more scholarships, it allows me to offer a greater impact to people who need it so that we can actually really change the world and do something impactful, even though I'm just talking about how to be a better speaker. Yeah, I mean, you are essentially going to be the bullhorn and the amplifier for so many ideas that haven't even crossed your desk yet, right? Like you don't even know about. And the, the cool thing about you being part of On Deck is is their flywheel and all of their other programs are going to feed directly to you because more so than almost any other fellowship they have besides maybe writing, speaking is a skill that founders are going to need. It's a skill that writers are going to need, that podcasters are going to need, that chief of staff, every, almost every single program they have could feed directly into yours. And that just amplifies the good that you'll be able to help put out into the world. So that's so exciting. Can you walk me through kind of what the cohort is going to look like when it starts in April? Like what's the curriculum? How's it structured? That kind of thing? Yeah. So it actually will start March 20th will be kickoff. But okay. in, in terms of the structure, so I'm kind of blending like the on deck model with my own model and kind of like that David Perel rite of passage model in a lot of ways where there's a core curriculum and those are live sessions that I'm telling people you need to show up for. Like, it's not a buffet. This is not a choose your own adventure. This is, if you want to be in the cohort, you show up to these lessons because that's where I'm you I'm glad learn. you're doing that. I'm really glad you're doing that. <laughs> so it's, 
you show up to these and they're going to be run twice. So it'll be like a Monday and a Thursday, but because it will be an international cohort, we're also going to run them Tuesday and Friday morning in the U S so like, and, and it's not a replay. Like I'm going to teach the whole thing. And it's essentially, I'm teaching the, the entire core curriculum to walk students so that we structure in a way that builds week after week after week on top of each other. So they can really master this with a holistic approach when it comes to speaking. And so that core curriculum, right, deals with all these things. How do we sound like a great speaker? So dealing with some of those mindset shifts and reframing energy instead of calling it nerves, calling it excitement. How do we think about, you know, our pacing? How do we deal with rhythm and volume and tone and all these sort of things that we think of? How do we tell great stories? What's the structure there? What's the framework? What's the framework for performance speaking? How do we think about this? <clears throat> Conversational skills, listening skills. How do we interview better? How do we negotiate better? How do we use everything at our disposal as a speaker. How can we deliver an impactful pitch? What's the difference between informative versus persuasive speaking? How do we do all these things that you need to in order to be a great speaker? So some of them are prepared. Some are going to be extemporaneous because in today's world, you need to be able to do both. And so that core curriculum really walks them through that. There's also, you know, video assignments similar to what Rite of Passage does with writing. And now what ODW2 is doing with writing as well, there will be every two weeks an assignment to create on video so you can get feedback and start to develop the skill and also watch other people inside of the fellowship and the way they speak because we learn from watching great speakers right and we take and we say i really like what they did there i'm going to take that it's funny the last time I, I ran the course on my own performance speaking i was listening to people deliver talks and i would i would tell them right there i'd be like i'm stealing that because it was that good and i'd be like i'm going to start using that it's, it's just too good and, and I really did because, and I tell people all the time, like steal from me, anything I say, steal from it. Like you don't need to credit me. You don't need to do anything. Like it's, it's yours to use. That's just the, the nature of the game. But then beyond that core curriculum, there will be things like CrossFit for speaking, which you're obviously aware of with CrossFit for writing and what David does, similar idea. There's also gonna be around eight to 15 guest speakers who are coming in. So truly world-class speakers who are on the speaking circuit at huge companies doing really, really impressive things. One of which is Justin Mickloy, the speech, former speechwriter for General Petraeus and General Mattis, who I'm super excited about because he has just a wealth of knowledge when it comes to this stuff and he's a good friend. It's, there will be all of that. There will also be additional kind of like asynchronous elective type stuff when it comes to how do we pitch to fundraisers? How do we develop a keynote address? How do we prepare for a panel appearance, podcast appearance, all these sort of skills that you need as a speaker, if that's something that aligns with your professional goals. So, Beyond that, there's small groups and we'll continue to use all those sort of tools to develop community and really build that out and make it a robust system where hopefully down the road in a year, five years, 10 years, people just keep looking back and they're like, man, everybody who came out of ODPS1 is doing incredibly cool things. And they're all super close to one another and working together and getting job opportunities and building stuff. Like I want that kind of setting to take place in ODPS1. I love that. I'm so excited to watch how it unfolds and what it turns into. I'd like to shift gears a little bit and talk about you outside of ODPS and kind of how you run your own life. So I, I had the opportunity to read through your personal operating manual, which is really cool. I think probably everybody should do one of these. And one of the things that stood out to me was your favorite quote. You say, make it simple, but significant. How have you applied this uh, principle to your life? It's really what I look at everything through. Right. I, I don't, I think too many times we, we think significance comes from being complicated. And in fact, I think the, even when I am speaking, oftentimes I'm trying to make it as simple as possible because that generally is what resonates. But the significant part is do things that are important to me. Right. And so 
when I'm thinking about it from a life perspective, let's make things simple. Let's focus on what I really care about and make something that is going to have a, a large impact. And so when we're thinking about, you know, developing great speakers and working with them, that makes a ton of sense to me. Like I'm very focused on, I'm not trying to do every piece of communication. Like I love writing. I could offer writing services too and say like, I'm a full communications boutique person, but that's not, that's not what I do best. Like let's focus and let's keep it simple, which is like speaking. That is a skill set that I have that a lot of people don't have like personally, and I can also teach it to other people and help them develop this. So let's focus on that. Let's keep it simple. Let's stay, you know, kind of really hone in on what, what makes me special, but then let's do it in a really significant way. Let's not, for me, that means I'm not working with somebody in high school just to develop basic speaking skills. To me, that isn't significant in the way that I think about it. Significant to me is like I said, how can I help people with world-changing ideas actually communicate their ideas to change the world? That to me is what makes it significant. So those are the types of people I'm trying to work with, the types of people I'm trying to attract. The same is true if I'm going to, to like a gym, right? Now I'm going to work out. If I'm going to work out, I'm not doing a bunch of stuff that feels complicated, but doesn't get any results, right? So like I was being into CrossFit back in the day. I still like to go to the gym a lot and spend a lot of time there. But I keep it pretty simple. Like if you looked at my workout routine, you'd be like, Robbie, you, you hardly do anything. And my dad does this to me all the time. He's like, I don't understand, Robbie. Like you spend 45 minutes in the gym, like three or four times uh, a week. And, and like, why don't you gain weight like I do? <laughs> and, and it drives him nuts because he'll spend an hour and a half, two hours there doing stuff. And he does all sorts of complicated things and doesn't see the same results. I'm like that because like, honestly, I keep it super simple and everything I do has high return because I'm doing, you know, big squats, big deadlifts, bench, like all the things that you would expect that really are delivering these results. So like every piece of my life is focused that way. When I'm reading books, I'm choosing books. Like if I'm not getting the value out of them very quickly, like there's no reason to do it. Like, so I don't focus on this idea of like having to do everything. And I think there's this misconception of like, even as a speaker, people ask if I've read a bunch of these, you know, like big speaker names. I honestly haven't. Because to me, it would just complicate things. Like I have a system, I have ideas and don't get me wrong. Like I talk to plenty of speakers and I'm learning and always open to new ideas, but I don't want to overcomplicate thinking that that makes it significant. Even when I design a course, when I tell people just show up for the, the core curriculum, that is because we're trying to keep it simple for them and trying to make it significant instead of saying, well, here's 10,000 things to do and making it feel significant just because it's complicated. That doesn't make any sense. Mm. So that's, really just the lens I look at every decision I make in life is, does it fit this, make it simple, but significant. Yeah. That's, that's an awesome mental model for so many things. I mean, I was talking, so I, I published a piece yesterday about company culture. And what I did with the piece was find like five companies that I really liked, really liked their culture, pulled out the things that I liked from each company, kind of put it together like a curation, intro conclusion, boom, ready to publish it. And I submitted it for feedback in ODW. And I got so much really thoughtful, really good feedback, but it was just so complicated. And, you know, some, I think it was actually Tom suggested like, hey, you should start sending emails to different companies and get like their inputs on, on what their culture is like and what their employees feel like. And he did caveat it with like, hey, this might be a big project. But I, I just had to step back and say like, hey guys, thanks for all this feedback, but like, I'm never going to publish this thing if, if this is how I'm going to approach it. So. You know, it might not be as good as if I had done all the things that they would have suggested for me to do, but it's done and it's out there now. 
You know, on those lines though, too, I think sometimes we can lose our lose sight of what we're trying to achieve if we try to take into account too much of what other people are saying. Mm. And, and so you can lose your own voice. I, I said this in that talk the other day that we did in ODW. I don't really edit when I write. I essentially write. I run it through a spell check to make sure nothing is messed there. And still, I'll, I'll probably miss one or two in every piece. And then I publish. I don't get feedback. I don't send it out to people to, to read it because I want my voice to ring through the piece that I'm writing. And I think sometimes we lose sight of this idea of thinking we can make it better if we take in all these pieces, but then it ends up being like a collaboration piece. So at that point, we might as well just ask random people to start writing their input. Like if you want to go get emails from the companies, like, please go do it. And then you can insert them into the piece to make it better. But then it's a collaboration piece and it's no longer your piece. And so I'm very much a fan of let's keep things very simple. Let's make it as frictionless as possible. And let's do it in a way that, again, is significant and is important and shows why we're writing and doing the things that we're doing. Exactly. Yeah. Reducing that friction is huge. I, I talk about that all the time. Like, if you want to do something, take away the friction, make it as easy as possible, make it like sledding down a hill, not running up an escalator. So, um, all right. I, towards the end of the episodes, I always like to give my guests a chance to ask me some questions. So do you have anything you'd like to ask me? Yeah, I, one I always do like to ask is favorite, favorite book you have and why that is the case. Oh, man, this is a tough one. Um, Alex Wiekowski asked me a similar question when he was on the podcast. And I think I said extreme ownership when I spoke with him. But I think I'm going to go with The Obstacle is the Way by Ryan Holiday. Um, and I, I really like that book just because of the mindset that it puts the reader in. Um, it's really applicable for so many situations that you're going to face in life. And it's, it's basically the idea of stoicism. Um, so when, when you're going to face things in your life that are difficult, like you know, losing your job or the death, death of a family member, or you know, you're publishing online a hundred times and nobody's looking at it, right? Like these, these little obstacles, instead of seeing them as being in the way, see them as becoming the way like that's just what you have to deal with now and overcoming that makes you a better person and it's the idea that you usually don't get to control what happens to you but you do get to control how you react to it and i think when when people start thinking in this fashion um, barriers start to come down you see yourself as you stop seeing yourself as a victim and you see yourself as somebody who can take action and get things done and i think that's it's really important for, for everyone. When you're saying that, it reminds me a little bit of the, the quote that I like to tell people when they're speaking or lawyers is Mike Tyson's quote, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth, right? And like, we know we're going to get punched if we're kind of getting in the trenches and the people who can just kind of take it and continue to move forward are the ones that are going to be successful. And very much like you said, we can't control what happens to us, but we can control how we react to it. Mm. And that's very much what I'm thinking there. In terms of like one, one more follow-up, if, if you'll let me. Sure. You're both, you're both a writer and a podcaster. What has been more enjoyable for you and why is that the case? I think the podcasting has been more enjoyable for me because it's not as intellectually painful, right? Like I just get to get on Zoom here with you. And of course, I've done a lot of prep. Like I've done hours of prep for every conversation. But then I get on and I just talk to people who are really interesting and I get to hear their ideas and I get to bounce my ideas off of them. And 
it doesn't have to be polished because it's not something I'm publishing in words, right? Like I can just kind of ramble on like an idiot and then just cut it out later. <laughs> it doesn't sound good. Um, but conversing is like a really easy thing for me to do. And I feel like I get a lot out of it. So probably podcasting. That said, writing is super high value. And I enjoy that. Obviously, it's just a lot harder. Yeah, I just asked because it's an interesting dynamic because I find myself in a similar place, right? Like, obviously, I do a lot of speaking and I do a lot of video and do things of that nature, but I also love writing. Mm. And they're so different. And I, I think I, I kind of wrote about this the other day about Clubhouse. And I was like, to me, Clubhouse reminds me of like baseball for me, where I was better at it. And so I had to go to it, even though it wasn't the sport I loved the most. And I loved, I loved basketball the most. Like, I would have, that's the sport I wanted to play, but I wasn't as good. So I wasn't going to go as far. So I made the transition and just fully embraced baseball because I saw where that future was headed. And I feel like it's similar to me where I'm, when I'm writing, I love writing. I think it's just absolutely beautiful. It's, it's so much fun for me, but it is, I'm not as successful writing as I am when I'm speaking. And so like, I kind of have to embrace this idea of baseball again. And for me, clubhouse appearances and videos and things of that nature where I'm like, I'm better at it, even though I maybe love writing more. Oh, that's interesting. I never would have guessed that you love writing more, but you're, you're super utilitarian. I, I like that. It's very practical and pragmatic. It's, that's good. I hate when people say like, follow your passion because when it comes down to it, like you need to make money in life. That's how you survive, right? And if you follow your passion and make almost no money, I think you're going to be pretty miserable. Whereas if you follow the thing you're good at, make a bunch of money and then use that money to fund your passion, you're going to be way happier. I, at least that's, that's how I see it. 100%. That is totally what I, I think. Like A lot of this is at some point I want to sit down and just write a bunch of books. Like I, I recently lost my dog and I said I want to write a book about our journey together. But I need time to be able to do that. And I need the ability to, to fund that journey to sit down and spend the time that it requires to really write something of high, high value. And you can't do that if you just, if I'm just chasing my passion, if I just sat down and like quit everything and was like, I'm just going to write this book, I don't know how I'd survive. So I agree with you there. Yeah. Yeah. And in, in six months when you're out of money and the book still isn't published, you're like, well, shit, now I have to go back to doing something I hate and I've not gotten anywhere. <laughs> exactly. So, all right. Let me hit you with some rapid fire questions and then we'll, we'll wrap it up here. Sure thing. So I love to ask my, my guests this one. What advice would you give to a smart, driven college student about to graduate? Start using the internet in a really intentional way. And that means creating a profile, creating an online brand, creating a personal brand, because that is your moat. That is what is going to make you stand out in the future. And if you do it now and start, you're going to be well ahead of the people who don't realize its importance at this point. That's great advice. What is a favorite mental model you use in your life other than the one that we just talked about? I mean, I'll use another quote and it's from another movie I love and it's what we do in life echoes in eternity. And I'm always kind of thinking through this idea. And it's not truly a mental model, but it is like a, a lens that I look through mm. the world at. If I'm focused on that, that means living a life full of integrity, having ethics, having values trying to do good, trying to help people and trying to build something both with friends and family that lasts beyond my lifetime. Like that's, I think that that's a super impactful way to approach everything that we do. I love that. 
Robbie, who's your favorite Twitter follow? Oh, that one's tough. I, I think I, I have to just give it to, to Jack Butcher. I think he's just, I love the visual aspect. And I love how he distills ideas down so well. And he's also just a very good friend. I've gotten to know him. So I think it, it, it hits home even, even more at this point. And I, I say this, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have taken this Twitter journey and done all this stuff if it wasn't for Jack and his influence early on. So I think I just kind of have a special place in, in, in my heart for Jack and for what he puts out there on Twitter and he'll always kind of get that love from me. Yeah, he's, he's a great follow and that's, that's a good reason that he's your top. All right, last one here. And this is one that I borrow from Patrick O'Shaughnessy. What is the kindest thing anyone has ever done for you? I mean, honestly, I'll give a, I'll give a recent example and I'm not sure it's the kindest thing, but I think it just speaks to the goodness of people is obviously Texas was going through a lot of terrible things this past week with all the freezing and people being out power and it being negative degrees here in Texas, which doesn't happen. Not having cell network, not doing all these sort of things. And I had complete strangers reaching out to me because they saw my Instagram or saw Twitter and offered me a place to stay. They were like, if you need anything, if you need to come and warm up, you need a place to work, you need food, like we have power and we can help you out. And so to me, like that coming from complete strangers was really impactful as well as, I mean, again, I, I, I referenced this earlier, like I recently lost my dog who I'd had for 10 years and she was 15 and just the number of people reaching out and sending like love and thoughts. And even a lot of people like I don't really have contact with, it just means a lot. And so I, I think those are two recent examples that just really stood out to me where I was like, man, people there's so much goodness in people. Like, yes, there's a lot of terrible things we see on the news and, and we're exposed to a lot of terrible things as well just in life, but there's so much goodness in people. And I always believe that the, the, the cup is half full. And this was another example of that. A lot of positivity there. That's a good place to end it. All right, Robbie, where can people find you if they want to continue the conversation, take your course, any of that? Sure. Best place to talk to me is on Twitter. That's at Robbie Crab. If you're interested in the course, that's beyonddeck.com backslash performative dash speaking. If you want to follow me on Instagram where I do more videos and things of that nature, that's at the Robbie Crab because somebody already stole Robbie Crab, so <laughs> I couldn't do that. And then if you want to email me, Robbie at beyonddeck.com, anybody can reach out and talk to me, DM me on any of those platforms. My personal website is robbiecrabtree.com. That's where I write. And you can go to my blog there where I wrote 30 articles in the month of January, as well as other things as well, including my year in review, which is a 3,300 word essay about 2020. And it's a story and how I got here. So lots of information there. And again, anyone can always reach out to me and I can point them in the right direction too. Awesome. I'll link to all that in the show notes. Robbie, thanks so much for coming on, man. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks, Joe. I really appreciate you having me. It was great. Thanks for spending your time listening to the show. If you have any questions, comments, or further topics for discussion, shoot me a message on Twitter at Joseph C. Wells. I'd love to hear from you. And make sure to sign up for my weekly newsletter, The Lake Street Journal, at josephcwells.com. Until next time, take care and thanks for listening.